Welcome to the University of Michigan Dentistry Podcast Series, promoting oral health care worldwide. We would like to take a few minutes to introduce you to some of the concepts and to the instrumentation involved in the handling of dental amalgam as a restorative material. One of the most important items associated with the handling of amalgam, of course, is the mechanical amalgamator. We have asked you to purchase the Capmaster Dental Amalgamator. Once you have removed this device from the packaging, keep in mind that the instructions are enclosed for a purpose. We'd like you to read them carefully and save them in your file of instructions that you've collected from the other instrumentation that you've purchased. Some of the basic features associated with the Capmaster Amalgamator. In the lower portion of the amalgamator is a mechan mechanical manual uh, off-on switch, which must be activated in order to run the device. Then there's a timing device which runs from zero through 30 seconds. The activating mechanism for turning the machine on for the period of time selected is the orange button in the center of the timer, which must be depressed. The device for actually mixing is on the top portion of the amalgamator. Remove the paper inserts that have been placed there to protect the mechanism during shipment. On the capsule station, the ends of the capsule retainer are movable and can be compressed in order to make room for the insertion of a capsule into the retainer. I'd like you also to note the motion of the capsule station. It's in a figure eight pattern and as this moves at a very high speed the amalgam alloy and the mercury are thrown back and forth across the capsule and amalgamation takes place. One of the other important aspects associated with the use of amalgam involves the method in which amalgam is purchased, purchased and handled. In the packaging of your amalgamator is a little envelope in which you will find a small funnel that can be used on occasion for the dispensing of powder into a reusable capsule. There are also two reusable capsules in the envelope. You will see that the end of the capsule provided by the SS White Company is a friction lock grip. Inside the capsule is a pre-selected weight pestle that aids in the amalgamation process. Another more efficient type capsule is one provided by the Kerr Corporation, which has a threaded or screw-on type cap. This is more efficient from the standpoint of leakage, does not tend to wear as fast as the friction lock capsule, and therefore will uh, give you less free mercury in the operating area. For a number of reasons, we have elected to go with pre-dispensed capsulated amalgam material. This particular capsule is 
spheroloy, the material currently being used in many areas of the school and made by the Kerr Company. In the bottom portion of the capsule, you'll find the amalgam alloy powder. In order to activate the capsule and bring the mercury and the powder together, finger pressure on the end of the capsule will activate by removing the pestle, a small plastic device separating the two, and then you see the free mercury that is available after activation for completing the amalgamation process. The amalgam that you will be using is the Titan amalgam manufactured by SS White. In order to demonstrate what is inside one of these capsules, we'll dislodge the lower member and dispense out onto the glass slab about 600 milligrams of amalgam alloy. Then the capsule can be activated Remove the lower member again, and you see the mercury available for amalgamation. Now, the Titan capsule does not have a plastic pestle inside to aid in the trituration, as did the Kerr spheroloy, and thus the reason for a high speed uh, mechanical amalgamator such as the Capmaster. In order to demonstrate both the amalgamation process and the plasticity of a fresh mix, we're going to mix a large 800 milligram mix. We'll activate the capsule by depressing the upper portion of the capsule, insert it into the mixing stage of the Capmaster, select a mixing time of 10 seconds, and activate the instrument. Upon completion of the mix, we'll remove the capsule, open the top stage, and dispense the contents onto the glass slab. Then attempt to pull this together into a usable mass. And then using a sharp Ward's carver, Ward's C carver, demonstrate that in the early stages of the amalgam mass, as we attempt to slice through it, it gives, it's really a semi-fluid mix and gives little or no resistance to the carving instrument. And we've termed this maximum plasticity. With continued testing at 15 second intervals, you see that by slicing through the mix at approximately two minutes, we can get some resistance to the carver. We can also carve and produce a curl as the carving comes off of the mass. And this plasticity is the medium range of plasticity, and it's during this range and the preceding one in which the material is condensed into the cavity preparation and carving is begun. With continued testing at approximately eight minutes, you find that there's an increase in resistance to the carver. The amount coming off is much smaller in size and tends to be somewhat brittle and fracture as the carving is completed. This is the third stage of plasticity. And we've defined this as insufficient plasticity to gain adequate carving.
As we continue to test for the 10-minute period, we find that the material offers a tremendous resistance to the carver. The surface appears highly polished and burnished after each carving rather than clean cut, and any shavings that do come off represent fractures rather than clean carving. Is it, at, it is at this stage in the uh, setting reaction at which the mix would be termed non-carvable plasticity and all operations on the material should cease. Once we have secured a mix with optimum plasticity, and we defined that previously as occurring in the latter stage of maximum plasticity and throughout the medium plasticity range, we would like to compact the plastic mass into the internal design of a cavity preparation. In order to do this, we will use a set of five condensing instruments numbered CD1 through CD5. The instruments are all double-ended instruments, one end being larger on the condensing face than the other end and both having the same geometric configuration. If we look closely at the largest face of the CD1 instrument, we'll see that the condensing surface itself is flat. And it's through this surface that the greatest amount of force is transmitted from finger pressure through the instrument to the plastic mass. Then, in order to fit the rounded configuration of our retention groove, the periphery of the condensing face is rounded or beveled from the condensing surface off onto the shank of the instrument. The CD2 condenser is similar in geometric configuration to the CD1 condenser, also circular in form at the condensing face, only somewhat larger in diameter, with both condensing faces being larger than the two faces on the first CD1 condenser. If we look at the CD3 condenser, a similar situation occurs. Again, the condenser face is rounded, and the diameter, again, is somewhat increased from that of the CD2 condenser. The CD4 condenser, on the other hand, is an elliptical-shaped face. The one end having an ellipse which is parallel to or in the line of the shaft of the instrument itself. The condensing face on the opposite end is a similar ellipse, but with the larger diameter of the ellipse perpendicular to the shaft of the instrument rather than parallel to it. And each of these elliptical forms will fit into a different aspect of certain cavity preparations. The CD5 condenser <clears throat> is a rounded condenser face similar to the CD2 condenser the only difference being that of the angulation of the condensing face as a, in comparison to the shaft of the instrument. The CD5 condenser being the one with the angle more closely approximating perpendicular to the shaft and shown on the left of the screen, the CD5 
one condenser being shown on the right side of the screen. In order to practice condensation during the laboratory session, we will dispense to you a die which opens. These dies are numbered and will be dispensed to you according to number. They're expensive and we must keep track of them. The dies can be closed by pushing the lower member together with the upper, then using the wing nut screw to securely fasten them during the condensation procedure. By having a die that's split and opens, we can obtain the samples which we have condensed. The cavity preparations that are simulated on the face of this die are first of all a class one cavity preparation that would occur in a bicuspid tooth on the occlusal surface. Secondly, a class one cavity preparation such as might occur on the occlusal surface of a molar. And then if you rotate the die to the other surface, we have a class five simulated cavity preparation as might occur on the facial surface of a posterior tooth. And then lastly, a larger cavity preparation simulating a class two cavity preparation involving the proximal surface and the occlusal surface of a posterior tooth. We will demonstrate packing and carving of amalgam, selecting a small capsule, 600 milligram capsule, and activating it, placing it in the capsule station, predetermining the trituration time at eight seconds, and mixing the alloy. Then remove the capsule, place the mixed alloy into the small surface of your dappen dish, clean dappen dish. Then we use a number three amalgam carrier, double-ended instrument, to dispense the amalgam in small increments from the dappen dish to the die itself. Dispense one increment, and we use the small end, or the large end really, of the CD2 condenser. We begin condensing in a stepwise fashion, getting adequate adaptation to the internal margins of the cavity preparation, condensing uniformly to remove the air voids and porosity from the mix, and thirdly, attempting to bring any mercury-rich amalgam material towards the surface where it can be removed from the dye. We'll then proceed with additional increments and begin to condense from the internal aspects of the cavity preparation towards the cable surface. As we reach the upper limits of the cavity preparation, 
we'll switch from the small end of the CD2 condenser to the larger end and add additional amalgam as necessary. As we reach the upper limits of the cavity preparation, and in order to ensure adequate overcondensation of the surface layer, we'll switch to the large end of the CD3 condenser and overcondense the amount of material that is on the over the occlusal surface. Once we've got a uniformly compacted surface, we can terminate the condensation procedure and begin toward, to look towards carving of that surface. We have asked you to use the contra-angle end of the Ward's carver and maintaining the instrument in position along a margin will carve off the amount of amalgam that is excess beyond the exposed margin of the die. Now once this excess material is removed, it must be deposited somewhere. Due to the problems associated with mercury vapor contamination, you have an ointment jar <coughs> which you have purchased for the specific reason of controlling the amount of amalgam and excess mercury that may remain after you've completed a procedure. We'll keep the jar closed at all times and you can maintain this collection through your dental school years and it can be reclaimed by the manufacturer. The carving can continue for a period of a few minutes. We get the surface flush and then we've asked you to carve a small half millimeter deep groove along what would be the simulated occlusal surface. We'll put an incline on that groove towards one side switch the wards carver and accentuate that incline along the opposite side. Remove the excess amalgam and you can see the final form or configuration of the carving. After finishing the carving of the fresh amalgam, one should wait a minimum of 30 minutes and preferably until the next laboratory period before removing the samples. In order to remove the sample, we will remove the wing nut separate one side of the die and lift out the set amalgam sample. You see the inner surface and the outer surface with the groove. We're going to use this to demonstrate the finishing procedures that we have asked you to carry through. The setup for finishing involves first of all the finishing burr, then carrot-shaped green abrasive stone, then the Moore's mandrel onto which we'll attach 
the selected discs. Then we've asked you to prepare a thin slurry of triple X silex and a similar slurry of tin oxide. And these will be used, the silex on the Robinson softcut bristle brush and the tin oxide on the unwebbed black rubber cup. The most significant amount of reduction on the surface of fresh amalgam will occur when, <coughs> with the use of the abrasive greenstone. The purpose of this experiment was to demonstrate the use of the instrument on the incline that we've prepared. And we merely use this instrument going back and forth with very light intermittent pressure until the surface we're abrading appears uniform in its texture. The second step is to follow any rough abrasive processes by using a finishing burr. This is used in the same configuration, again going over the previously abraded surface until the texture again becomes uniform. The next step is to follow that smooth abrasive process with a polishing procedure. We use the Robinson soft cut bristle brush and the Silex slurry using the inner aspect of the brush to follow the groove. After thoroughly rinsing the surface to remove all traces of the Silex slurry, we then put a final polishing agent on using the unwed black rubber cup and the thin slurry of tin oxide. Using the inner aspect of the rubber cup again to follow the outer planes of the groove. The final step in evaluating surface texture is to use an abrasive disc. We've asked you to insert the Moore's mandrel into the latch head and then to place one of the Moore's discs with a, bra with a brass center, which will snap on over the top of the mandrel. Then we use the simulated flat proximal surface of the specimen to abrade with the disc until the surface is uniform in texture. After each individual finishing abrasive is applied to the surface, it should be evaluated carefully under the use of the available microscopes. Comments should be made in the manual regarding the uniformity in surface texture, the depth of the abrasive tracks, and the appearance of a satin finish visually. From using these various abrasives and evaluating the surface produced in each step, it is hoped that a rational selection can be made of the proper instruments for a clinical sequence in the proper finishing of dental amalgam. You've been listening to a presentation from the University of Michigan School of Dentistry, which is dedicated to supporting open learning and open educational resources. This recording is licensed under the Creative Commons. It may be reused and redistributed for nonprofit use. Please attribute materials to the University of Michigan School of Dentistry and redistribute under this same license. 
For more information on how this and other University of Michigan School of Dentistry recordings may be used, visit www.dent.umich.edu slash license.